Well, I thought you might be getting a little sleepy here on the second day of class, so I decided to step up the sartorial interest a little bit more. Bam! So, there it is. I wasn't going to wear shorts because I hate to inflict my knees on any public body, but then I noticed yesterday I'd be well hidden up here, so uh, I went for the shorts on the hope that it'll be warm today. Could you turn this the PA down just a crank because... Uh, when I get up to speed, it'll be too loud. <clears throat> Let me uh, have you turn as we begin. This is our third uh, message in, entitled, Securing a Fragile Unity, Paul's Practical Theology of Peace. And to sort of set the background, I'd like to read uh, a couple of portions from the book of Acts. First of all, chapter 11, and then in chapter 15. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. And then skipping way down to verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Then verse 25, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And then over to chapter 15 of Acts. Acts 15, beginning in verse 13. This is an account of the uh, gathering of the apostles and the elders who met in Jerusalem to consider the question of the status of converted Gentiles in the church, uh, according to verse 6 of Acts 15. But we'll start in verse 13. When they, that is the apostles and the elders, finished, James spoke up, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat 
of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friend Barnabas and Paul, when you have men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Let's pray. Lord God, as we continue to meditate upon your word and reflect on your concern for the peace and the unity of the body of Christ, we pray that we might think your thoughts after you that we would subject all of our human opinions and judgments to the Spirit speaking in Scripture. Lord, we know that in many instances um, we have to make judgments on matters. We have to strike balances between options uh, where we don't always uh, have explicit biblical uh, statements that we can rest upon. And so we plead for the wisdom that you alone give by teaching us the scripture and giving us, uh, uh, making us so accustomed to using it and applying it that we can uh, evaluate things that are between the dots uh, and uh, draw proper conclusions. And, And we pray that you would bring us as a whole church to that idea. Uh, so that um, we might grow in the truth and also in the unity and the peace of the body of Christ. Help us in this hour, Lord, to see and appreciate uh, the work of the Apostle Paul in seeking to forge um, out of many elements uh, a new uh, entity uh, based on the truth of the message of Christ and his death and resurrection. Uh, We ask you to guide and direct our thoughts in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, tendency to idealize the quote-unquote early church is probably as old as the second generation of church history. And throughout the history of the church, reformation movements or revival movements have often uh, set forth the ideal of returning to the principles or returning to the practices or the experience of the early church. Uh, it's easy to kind of get a, uh, a glowing opinion of what things were like in the good old days. Uh, nostalgia does that for all kinds of memories. Uh, 
But you read the New Testament, and I know this is not new to you, and you find out that there were a lot of problems, and we admit those things. For example, you read the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and you see problem after problem after problem that Paul addresses in that letter. But I think we often fail to appreciate just what a, a house of cards the church was from a human standpoint there at the beginning. What a, what a tentative, what a fragile affair the whole thing was, and, and in a way continues to be. You know, we uh, put up church buildings, we get uh, budgets that are in the black, we get a reasonable sized congregation, and we begin to think that we're an established church. But some of you have been in congregations where the move from a solid, established church doing just fine to hanging on by your fingernails, by the skin of your teeth, can happen in just a matter of months either because of a disruption within the body of Christ or moving away of some key families or uh, the dip in income, whatever it might be, and uh, you can go from sitting pretty to uh, crying out for divine help and mercy very, very quickly. It's still a tentative, fragile affair all these many years later. Certainly we've learned a lot in the process of church history. We stand on the shoulders of giants who have gone before us But the day-by-day work of living in the body of Christ is still uh, a very um, difficult uh, matter. Um, All the church had going for it, uh, and it was, of course, when I say all, I'm being ironic, uh, all it had going for it was the promise of the risen Lord and the presence of His Spirit among them. But that promise and that presence of the Lord and His Spirit led to a lot of work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. I want us to talk today about Paul as a practical theologian of peace. Before we get into some specifics, uh, let's think for a few minutes about Paul's theology. Uh, His theology, as rich and as timeless as it has become in the mind and in the life of the church, is frequently addressed to particular circumstances and practical needs in the local congregations. When we think about Paul as a theologian, we appreciate, as Gerhardus Voss said, for example, that Paul was the greatest constructive mind ever at work on the data of Christianity the greatest constructive mind ever at work on the data of Christianity. Voss drew attention to the systematic bent of Paul's thinking, which, quote, made him pursue with great resoluteness the consequences of given premises, end quote. Thus we are properly accustomed to thinking of Paul's theological system, of Pauline theology, And that Pauline theology has become the cornerstone of the church's theology, and particularly the systematic theology generated in Protestant, Evangelical, and Reformed traditions. But we need to appreciate also that the body of Paul's speaking and writing um, really comes to us not in the form of a systematic theology book. Uh, He preached sermons. He gave some defenses of himself that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. And then we have his 13 canonical letters 
written to different churches, different places, different times. Paul did not write a book of systematic theology. His theological reflections are largely occasional. That is, they arise out of a particular occasion, a particular circumstance. And indeed, his letters are pastoral letters. Uh, Even the kind of rough and ready division that we sort of get used to, you know, we get theology and then we get application in Paul. And sometimes you can, you think you can see the dividing line pretty sharply when you get a nice big therefore, like at the beginning of Romans chapter 12. Um, But... uh, As you read Paul more carefully, you see that the theology is full of practicality, and the practicality is rich with theology. So we really do need to think of Paul as a pastoral, practical theologian. Dick Gaffin wrote, In short, the true problem in understanding Paul is that he is a theologian, a careful and systematic thinker, accessible only through pastoral letters and records of his sermons. His writings are obviously not doctrinal treatises, but neither do they consist in a variety of unrelated ad hoc formulations or in an unsystematic multiplication of conceptions. They reflect a structure of thought. So, uh, And then he likens it to uh, an iceberg, where you have the tip of the iceberg, which is Paul's writings, and then you have the the submerged part of the iceberg, which is the richness of his theological reflection. And Dr. Gaffin and other Pauline scholars, New Testament scholars, often try to enter through the exposed portion of the iceberg and then explore this rich theology under the surface. And that uh, has yielded uh, much uh, very helpful theological instruction for us. But today, I want us to concentrate on the pastoral tip of this submerged iceberg rather than all of the theological system underneath, although we'll allude to that. We'll ask the question, to what use did Paul put his theological reflection? To what use? How did his theology function in the life of the church? And we'll find, just to preview our answer, some of Paul's most penetrating and foundational theological statements are presented in the context of pressing, practical, pastoral concerns. How's that? Pressing, practical, pastoral. I'm a poet. And frequently, these pressing, practical, pastoral concerns... I can't say that very often, so I hope you got it in your notes... Frequently, those concerns pertain to the topic that we're examining together this week, the peace and the unity of the church. Paul's theology gives power to his pastoral work. And I think we can understand from that the truth, truth, when it's ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit, is a powerful engine for personal and for corporate change. And what I want to do in the balance of our time this morning is to look at several examples of this from Paul's letters uh, and see how this pastoral theology of peace emerges. Now, I listed, um, at the time I put the outline, uh, got the outline in for the booklet, I I listed all of the ones that I might talk about. Obviously, we don't have time to talk about all of those, so I'm going to highlight some of them, but hopefully I can pick ones that will give you a, a clear sense of how Paul generates his theology and applies his theology to pastoral concerns. 
So let's start in the book of Galatians. Uh, many uh, Pauline scholars believe this is one of his earliest letters, and so we get some of his first statements on some very, very important issues. And here the theological point I want to identify is the obvious one, uh, justification by faith. Uh, look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. This is one of the classic statements of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith. Galatians 2.16, We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one will be justified. So that's a magnificent statement of Pauline theology. But let's back up a step now and take a look at the context in which that statement is made. What was the pastoral problem that Paul was addressing with that statement and others in this book? Well, it was a very specific instance. Peter, another apostle, had withdrawn from table fellowship with converted Gentiles in Antioch because he was afraid of what certain from the so-called circumcision group would think of him. Perhaps you know the story, and I hope you know enough of the background for me not to have to sketch this in in a lot of detail. But Peter was the one who went to Cornelius' household. Peter was the one who had already been criticized in Jerusalem for doing so. Peter was the one who explained himself, and the church in Jerusalem said, oh, that's wonderful, now the grace of God has come to the Gentiles. So Peter in Antioch sits down with all of these Gentile converts and enjoys a common table fellowship as equal sharers in the grace of God. And then some converts from Judaism come up from Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Peter moves over to a different table. He doesn't want to be seen with those Gentiles anymore for fear of what those from the circumcision group will say. And there it is in verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. I mean, Barnabas is mentioned as the last guy on the planet that you would imagine to be sucked into this hypocrisy. But there it was. And that's what Paul is addressing in this context. So what's Paul's practical, peaceful, unifying solution to this problem? Well, it's a very startling public rebuke of his fellow apostle Peter. And in the body of that rebuke comes this explanation of the non-exclusive nature of justification. Paul talks about the nature of justification in such a way that emphasizes that the converts from among the Gentiles, like those who are converted from Judaism, are jointly members in the Messiah's family. They are on equal footing. And that is because faith, not the works of the law, but faith is their common identification and life. Look at verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, 
You were a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We are not Jews by birth. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with, him, with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So Paul is emphasizing the centrality of faith to justification Partly, I mean, not only because it's true, but partly because Gentiles can exercise faith in Jesus as the Messiah just as well and maybe even more readily, at least based on the early history, than the Jews were able to. And because faith is that which unites them to Christ, faith is that which binds them together. So for them then to reinsert the social and other considerations that might divide them is something that's appalling to Paul, and he wants to correct. Now, that same connection between the centrality of faith and justification and this equality and union of Jew and Gentile is there in Romans 3 as well. Just flip over there for a moment. I can't take a lot of time with this, but I just want you to see the connection again because we're pretty used to taking the verses about justification out of the context and analyzing them systematic theologically, and there's nothing wrong with that. We need to do that. But then we need to remember to put the jewel back in the setting and see what it was trying to do in the first place. And for our purposes, this matter of the, the unification of Jew and Gentile, as I tried to point out yesterday, is really at the heart of the matter. So the other classic, or the, one of the classic statements on justification in Romans 3 makes the same point. Uh, I'll start reading in verse 21, but I really want to draw your attention to um, verse 28 uh, and following. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Then verse 27, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Then verse 29, And here the uh, NIV, which I'm using at this point, um, uh, when I was making up these uh, outlines, sometimes I could use my ESV Bible program, sometimes I was stuck with my NIV one, or sometimes I could use my NIV one, and sometimes I was stuck with my ESV one. So there's not a lot of consistency, but right here this is NIV. Verse 29 leaves out uh, a little Greek uh, statement, so that verse should say, or is God the God of Jews only. Paul's connecting what he says in verse 29 with what he just got through saying. So 
the, the fact that God is not the God of the Jews only, but also the God of the Gentiles, yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So the statement about Jew and Gentile is not something that Paul just sort of tags on as a PS. That's where he's going with this discussion, and he emphasizes that the centrality of faith which justifies both the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, and the circumcised, the Jews. So Paul's pastoral concern then, as he addresses Peter in this public rebuke, is to say, Peter, you know as well as I do, when you went to Cornelius, he believed what you said about Jesus the Messiah. And on that basis, that Cornelius and those there, those Gentiles, received the gift of justification. And so you can't set them off in another room as if they're some other kind of creature. Maybe that worked when we were all Jews and the dividing lines were there, but now in Christ, that dividing line is gone. And our faith in Christ forces us to come to grips with the unity that we have with these Gentile believers. They were outsiders. Remember, this is what we studied yesterday. They were formerly strangers. They were formerly alienated. But now, through the blood of Christ, they have been brought near. So you're not at liberty to pick your coffee and your donut up and go sit at another table. So theology drives this, um, this, uh, this uh, seeking after and promoting unity within the church. And again, it's the big dividing groups here of Jew and Gentile. Now let's take a look at 1 Corinthians. Uh, and here we could pick different things, but I wanted to draw your attention to the, uh, the theology of the Lord's Supper that is stated there in chapter 11. Indeed, uh, 1 Corinthians 11:23 and following are the words of institution that probably we most often read in our worship services when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so these words are going to be very familiar uh, to, uh, <clears throat> to mo- many of you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the light, night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Now there again, we are used to pulling that out of its context and talking about what it teaches concerning the nature of the Lord's Supper and what, that we ought to examine ourselves, and there are many, uh, often many dis- uh, discussions and disagreements about what Paul is, is uh, teaching us there, and, and again, that's, that's part of the submerged discussion, but let's think about what, what's the pastoral problem, what's the practical necessity that leads Paul to make those statements. Well, you probably know if you've read 1 Corinthians before, it's the party divisions that were in existence among various groups within the Corinthian congregation or congregations. 
Paul mentions the problem right at the outset of his letter. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 10, you can see that this was high on his list of topics to deal with. I appeal to you, brothers, this is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any among you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then Paul's off on a wonderful digression for a while. And then in chapter 3, he comes back to this topic again. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither who he, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field and God's building. And then he goes on to talk about his particular function as a, as a foundation-laying apostle. Um, but the point there then is that there had arisen within this Corinthian church, which had been um, enriched by the ministry of lots of different leaders. I mean, just think of one church who could say, we've, we've got contact with Paul and Cephas and Apollo and so forth. And they were kind of comparing their, uh, their uh, different uh, leaders. And, and, and then, as we said yesterday, sin enters the picture and pretty soon there are jealousies. Uh, rivalries, quarrelings, and so forth. And that, then, is the question that Paul uh, addresses when he comes to the question of the Lord's Supper, because the same problem was now becoming apparent in their celebrations of the Lord's Supper. So back to chapter 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church... There are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. So that's the setup. Not only these parties, but also apparently a division between the rich and the poor. The people who could bring all they wanted to eat to church and the people who came to the church with virtually nothing. So then if you skip down, I won't read it again, but after the section that is the words of institution that we are most familiar with, when Paul then says, this is how you fix the problem, verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment, and when I come, I will give you further directions. So what's Paul's practical peaceful, unifying solution to this problem? A warning about the seriousness of participating in the Lord's Supper without discerning the Lord's body. And I'm persuaded that that is a reference to the church rather than to the significance of the element of the bread and what that means concerning the, uh, the bread and the wine. Not to say that we don't need to understand the symbolism of the supper, But I think within the context, Paul is talking about not participating in communion in light of the corporate life of the whole body, not discerning and understanding what's going on and what needs to be done. Because when he finally gives his practical solution or his practical advice, it doesn't have anything to do with now spend more time studying the theology of of the sacraments. It's wait for one another. Eat at home. Be considerate. And, uh, and so show forth that love in the body. He even reminds them that God can directly and personally intervene in chastening uh, dis, uh, disorderly believers with sickness and even death. And he describes that as falling asleep, which I take to be the death of believers. So he's not chastening people for eating because they don't have saving faith in Christ. These are people who do have saving faith in Christ. They are believers. When they die, they fall asleep. But they're still failing to discern the Lord's body and act uh, as they should to promote the unity and the fellowship of the church. And then the practical instructions, which I already uh, read, that um, need to be taken into account. So um, that little exposition may may raise more questions in your mind than it answers, but I, I, I suggest to you again that that's Paul using his theology to lever a practical pastoral problem in the direction of solving that problem in the name of a greater unity and a deeper fellowship within the church. Uh, now let's jump over to Romans uh, for a moment. How are we doing on time here? We've got about 20 minutes left. Okay, we'll, we'll hit a couple more. Um, Chapter 14, a statement of the sovereign lordship of Jesus over every area of life. Um, A doctrine that we Reformed people really salivate over. The the cosmic, the universal lordship of Jesus. Verse 8, if we live, we live to the Lord. This is Romans 14, verse 8. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Wonderful. You could make that text really sing in a sermon on the comprehensive Lordship of Jesus Christ. But what's the problem that Paul is addressing with a statement like that? Well, it's the conflict between what he calls 
weak and strong believers. Those whose consciences are weak or strong with respect to issues concerning food and drink and the observance of certain days. And he deals with the same topic uh, in 1 Corinthians as well. But look at the beginning of Romans 14, verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One's man, one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Then verse 5. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 about these differences of opinion. And again, against the background, uh, certain converts, uh, maybe some from Judaism who had certain scruples about the observance of various days, Uh, And then other Gentiles who were accustomed to eating meat offered to idols and other kinds of things. Some were able to do it with uh, freedom and and not a care in the world because they knew uh, the theology that uh, set them free in Christ. And others were still, as we might say, hung up. They still had problems. They couldn't act freely in faith in these matters. And so Paul is addressing that kind of problem. And he emphasizes the lordship of Christ to say, you, Christian, can't pass judgment on you, Christian, because you both have a judge who is Christ in heaven. And because He is Lord of all, and because He will judge all, then each one of us answers to Christ, and so our passing of judgment explicitly or implicitly on one another over these particular issues and others as well um, is inappropriate. And Paul warns against it. So his practical, peaceful, unifying solution to this problem is a call to remember that we all answer to one Lord. In His judgment, we stand or fall. Therefore, we are not to pass judgment on disputable matters. We must, as he says in verse 1 and 3, accept one another, for God has accepted each of us. In verse 15, or in chapter 15, where he continues this discussion, verses 7, he makes the same point. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And then again in verse 18 in that chapter, anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. So approval and acceptance are rooted in what God has taught rather than whatever we might bring to the table. Now, for us, it may not be meat offered to idols, but we've all got our ideas about what decent Christian behavior should look like. Sometimes they really are legitimate ethical concerns, but sometimes they're, they're different. You know, I mean, we, uh, I probably shouldn't pick an example because somebody will be mad at me. They'll pass judgment on me if I do. But, uh, you know... Um, you think people should dress up for church on Sunday. And you could probably generate an ethical argument why you ought to dress up for church on Sunday. And then somebody comes in there, looks like they crawled right out of bed with last Thursday's clothes on. And you think, what's the matter with that guy? Doesn't he know what we're doing here? And you begin to pass judgment in your heart. Okay, well, those are the kinds of things that we still face today and a good, healthy dose of remembering that everybody answers to Christ should at least slow us up in our eagerness 
to criticize and to condemn one another for not conforming to what I take to be appropriate behavior. Now, again, if there's an ethical issue involved, then you need to go to your brother, talk it through, study the Scriptures, and bring it under the judgment of Christ by His Word. But if it's just something that you say, well, I would never do something like that, then maybe you ought to keep your mouth shut and let uh, your brother or your sister stand under the judgment of his true Master, who is the Lord Jesus. So rather than mutual contempt or censoriousness, we must live a life of love, as he says. And that, pra- that is practically manifest not in putting a stumbling block before one's brother, that is, causing your brother to fall, but, and thus destroying him. Verse 19, make every effort uh, to, um, to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. That's the bottom line for Paul. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Only in such a loving, caring environment can each person mature so as to become fully convinced in his own mind, which is a necessary precondition of living by faith. See, Paul is trying to give the church some space, some time to think, some time to work out the implications. If everybody jumps behind the cotton bales and starts firing at one another across the lines right at the outset, I mean, Paul is very clear. He wants everybody to come to a strong conscience. He wants everybody to end up eating and drinking freely in Jesus Christ. But he doesn't just stand there and say, okay, the strong people are right, the weak people are wrong, get over it. He says, take your time. Work it through. Love and accept one another while you work through to what he hopes will be and believes should be a common opinion after all is said and done. This is wonderful stuff. I wish I could take more time with it, but I've got to jump on. Colossians. Man, I'm going to have to skip Colossians. Sorry. No time. Because I want to talk about Philippians for a moment. <clears throat> Philippians, of course, has that magnificent statement of Christology um, in chapter 2. Uh, a classic statement of the incarnation, the uh, humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus the Messiah. Beginning in verse 5, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a wonderful statement um, concerning our Savior. But again, it's not given in the abstract. And if we take it out of its context for analysis, that's fine. But let's put it back in its context again. What's the problem? Well, at the heart of it appears to be a breach between two faithful ladies in the Philippian church. Ladies who had been valuable servants of the Lord Jesus. One named Euodia and the other Syntyche. 
And perhaps others who had heard about their differences and difficulties had begun to side with one or the other of these elect ladies so that the fissures of division were spreading. In chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 2, after all of the preparation, finally Paul gets to what he wants to say to these two ladies. Philippians 4, verse 2, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Uh, and then he refers in verse 3, to them having uh, contended at my side in the cause of the Gospel. I've sometimes seen uh, Euodia and Syntyche portrayed as a couple of cranky ladies who just couldn't... But Paul, I, I, I hear Paul saying these ladies are too valuable to me and to the mission of the, work, uh, of the church. That's the concern. And then, and then from that division, apparently, uh, other fishers showing up. So what's Paul's practical, peaceful, unifying solution? Well, it's a per- that personal exhortation to a Euodian Syntyche, together with a request for help, if necessary, from other brothers in the church, and backed up by a more general call to imitate the humility and self-sacrificial service of Jesus Himself. Why should these two ladies... Or how can these two ladies come to one mind? By bringing everything that they know or that Paul will teach them about the humility and the other service of Jesus to bear upon their situation. So in Philippians chapter 2, if we read before the part that we read, starting in verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. You see, the, the ladies had lost sight of that. And so Paul's reminding them, way before he mentions them by name, way before he zeroes in on that, he's laying the foundation. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Maybe there's a hint that the original problem was somebody did something and maybe they got more recognition and, and one of the other ladies was just as at heart at work, but the pastor forgot to thank her or something like that. I mean, who knows? And, and so there's, there's this rivalry, this, this envy. So don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but, all, but to the interests of others. And then, that's the attitude that should be the same as the attitude of Christ Jesus. And then comes that great statement. So you see the, 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 uh, the sledgehammer of the Christology is to drive home the, the wedge. Or This is a bad, because the wedge makes things to go farther away. What can we, well, you know, do something with the mixed metaphor. But, uh, but the theology gives weight and force to this personal appeal to Euodia and Syntyches and, and others like them to have the humility of Christ to go in that spirit to a brother or sister with whom you have a problem to be reconciled. And then after that great Christological statement, again, Paul tells us what, or tells them and us, what he wanted them to do with it. Verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, 
But now, much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'll just mention parenthetically, uh, you can take this for what it's worth, but J. Adams points out that the, the term salvation is the same term for solution. And uh, again, we, you know, this is on all of our wall plaques and bumper stickers, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But, but uh, Dr. Adams suggests that what Paul is saying here is, now work out the solution to this problem. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So certainly we can use it in the, in the grand scheme, but in the context he's just saying now... You people who are divided, you're at odds with each other, have the materials necessary to work out a reconciling solution to this immediate problem. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. I've had the great privilege in the last couple of years of uh, helping a couple of sets of Euodias and Syntyches get reconciled to one another. And it was beautiful because they both, in each case, they loved the Lord so much and something just got out of whack and they were separated with one another and, and they stayed estranged for a while. And when it came to my attention and I was able to get them to sit down together with me, they solved their problem almost immediately if they had somebody to help them hear what the other person was saying or, or was concerned about. You know, sometimes I try to get people reconciled that just, they don't, they don't have the background. They don't know what they're supposed to do. They don't have a Philippians outlook on things. And so you're trying to bring them together when they really don't have the resources. But it's, it's really nice when, when people know all the answers, but there's some little roadblock there. And as soon as you slide it out from between them, they can work out their solution for God is at work in them. That's wonderful. Well, I put Philemon on the list. Um, uh, that's a wonderful little uh, book where, um, where Paul basically gives, uh, gives Philemon good reason to send Onesimus back to continue to work with Paul, but we can't take time there. I want to just touch on the, uh, the, uh, a matter in 2 Corinthians because this kind of goes back to the big stage of Paul's work again where he talks about the, uh, the Gentile offering. Let me draw your attention to a couple of, again, great classic verses. 2 Corinthians 9.15, first of all. Some of you could quote it if I give you the beginning. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Right. Thanks be to God. And who is that indescribable gift? The Lord Jesus. Correct. Then back a chapter in chapter 8, verse 9. Uh, another wonderful statement of our Savior's grace and love to us. For you know, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for our sake, your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. The problem that Paul has in mind is the continuing fear and suspicion of the Gentiles on the part of the Jewish believers particularly those in Jerusalem and Palestine. And actually, this, uh, concern, uh, this theme of the offering not only is mentioned here in 2 Corinthians, it's in 1 Corinthians, it's in Romans, it's, it, it, it runs through many of Paul's letters because it was a huge enterprise that he undertook as he went about preaching the gospel in the Roman world. 
So this, this continuing uh, fear on the part of, uh, of the, the Jewish converts of their Gentile brothers, and we've already seen it was there, and then it seemed to be solved, and then it was still there, and they made other efforts to solve it, and then it was still there. So this was a tough nut to crack. This took many efforts to, uh, to bring about. Uh, there was opposition from the, within the church that sometimes uh, dogged Paul's own steps, uh, as he mentions in Galatians. Um, and, and as we saw when we read from Acts 15, it did not, at least according to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, that opposition or that fear and suspicion did not legitimately reflect, reflect the views of the Jerusalem leadership. Remember, uh, James said, we have, or the letter said, we have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So here again, you have this very fragile truce between Jewish converts and Gentile converts. The dividing lines are always there, just under the surface, and sometimes right out on top of the surface. And Paul knows that, that, uh, that historical events of huge proportions are right on the horizon too, with the, uh, the coming of the, the Jewish revolt and the, and the Roman suppression of that and all of that's, that that's going to mean historically. So what's Paul's practical, peaceful, unifying solution? He organizes a massive diaconal offering from all the Gentile churches that he had planted throughout the Mediterranean world, which he, perhaps personally, but under his auspices, is going to have carried to Jerusalem as an act of loving service to God and a sign of love from these Gentiles to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are in need. The Gentile believers, as Paul sees it, are going to be represented. They're going to be embodied in this offering that they give, which Paul, as a priest, is going to carry to Jerusalem. This is a personally a risky enterprise for the Apostle Paul. Logistically, it's, it's dangerous. You know, he didn't live, live in the day of uh, electronic bank transfers. So he's got a collect all this money, account for all this money, convert all this money into a form where he and other responsible people can take it by land and sea to Jerusalem. You know, I mean, most of us as pastors, we're glad we have deacons to do that kind of work. But Paul wanted to be directly involved because of the theological significance of the offering. And then he knows that when he finally brings it to Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians might say, this is dirty money. We don't want it. It comes from the Gentiles. So it's risky business. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where we were just looking, verse 12, this service, he's writing to the to Corinthians, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people. So, okay, it's not just about the money for the needy church in Jerusalem, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Remember, these are Gentiles. Okay? They have confessed the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. They have become obedient to the faith. These are all the things that elsewhere Paul describes he's trying to promote in the Gentile churches. And now the offering is going to represent that and lead to thanksgivings 
on the part of many. Verse 14, and their prayers for you, their, uh, and in their prayers for you, their heart will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Again, you don't have to turn to it, but just listen to what he, how he describes it in Romans 15 at, the, in, at verse 25. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. From Macedonia and Achaia, for Macedonia and Achaia, we're pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So he's telling the people in Rome what he's going to do before he can come back and visit them on the way to Spain. He's got to go to Jerusalem with this offering. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, that is, to the, Gentile, to the Jews in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So, after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. This Paul sees as the kind of the, uh, the, the culmination of the, uh, the first fruits that he is gaining among the Gentiles. He can't bring all these Gentiles with him to Jerusalem, so he brings their offering instead to sort of tie up all of these uh, ends together. Well, again, more that uh, we could think about and talk about there. Let me tie this all up and then we'll, we'll close. Paul is a practical theologian of peace. His reflection under the Spirit's guidance and direction as an organ of revelation on the person and work of Christ is rich, comprehensive, consistent, systematic, but he has a heart for the churches that he has planted first and foremost. And it strikes me, and maybe it will strike you too, that the difference between Paul and many of his conservative Presbyterian followers today, like us, is that Paul used the truth to weld disparate elements into one church as much as he could. We too often, or I too often, am trying to find the fissures that are lurking under the surface so that I can drive a wedge in there and make things even more separated. If we're going to follow Pauline theology, we need to be more comprehensively Pauline, and that means more pastorally. Pauline in our theology. And after all, drawing lines in the sand is relatively easy. Persuading and moving whole bodies of people as one from one position to another takes a lot more effort, and it's much, much more costly and even risky. Theology, when applied practically and pastorally, as I said earlier, is a powerful instrument of peace and unity in the church. So, as we think about our rich theology as Reformed believers, what doctrines do we really need to understand better? Not in the abstract, but in their practical pastoral import. I mean, we're heating up for a really hot conflict over the nature of justification these days. But how concerned are we at the impact of that doctrine and what we conclude about it for healing the divisions and the separations within the church? We all confess the incarnation of the Son of God, but how many of us bring that doctrine to bear upon the kind of humility that needs to be characteristic of our relationships? 
the love of God and the cross of Christ, that indescribable gift, that that, does that induce in us a desire to give and to give not just our money but ourselves for one another? Those are the kinds of questions we have to wrestle with. And I think we'll need to work much more diligently at preserving and promoting the peace and the unity of the church just because we have such a